1: You're listening to fourth estate the show where journalists talk journalism and this week we've got a special guest for a one-on-one interview adam thomas is the newly appointed director of the european journalism center known as the ejc the ejc is an independent non-profit foundation dedicated to promoting the highest standards in journalism through a range of projects including training research and seminars before joining the ejc adam is the chief of product he is based at the EJC's headquarters in Maastricht in the Netherlands, and I spoke to him on Skype. Sorry if the sound quality is a little scratchy. Adam recently penned a piece on Medium called Do We Need More News Addicts? The article explored how news organisations could build better business models by understanding the way people consume information online and on their personal devices. Adam. Adam. You wrote that in order to attract loyal audiences, news organizations will need to start building products addictive enough to behave more like Netflix than newspapers. But if our sources of news only provide us with content that panders to our personal preferences and beliefs, won't that just exacerbate the problem of the filter bubble?
0: Good, tough first question, Olivia. I like it. So, I mean, I think the two things are slightly separate, and maybe we shouldn't conflate them. When I was writing about addiction which is obviously a loaded term but when i was writing about addiction i was really thinking about the processes by which social platforms and 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 mobile sites and, and our addictive mobile behavior at the minute um, how that behavior has come to shape our emotions and how basically news organizations are not very good at building those types of addictive behaviors facebook is very good at it twitter is very good at it snapchat is fantastic at it and that's why facebook sees it as being such a threat um, but news organizations haven't done that very well and that's why they're seeing their I guess their audiences disappear a little bit so my argument would be that news organizations need to get better at engaging readers or, or an audience on a regular basis and then with inside that I think it's then up to the domain of the newspaper to, to take whatever responsibility they feel like they have towards a balanced. Uh, media diet you know to bring in all of those different viewpoints and to kind of break out of that filter bubble to an extent
1: okay so let's say you do succeed in building a truly addictive news product are there any ethical considerations associated with that and if there are whose responsibility is it to enforce them should there be government oversight warnings like the graphic pictures on cigarettes or should news organizations maybe instead try to limit the addictiveness of a news product so that the audience isn't completely hooked
0: so let's break down addictiveness. There's there's sort of two types of triggers that I talked about in the article. Um, the first are what I would call external triggers. So these are where the app or the product sort of comes into your life by placing some information within your environment. So the most obvious way of describing this is a notification on your phone. This sort of, you know, pings and says, hello, I'm here. But it also might just be a post shared for the first time on your, on your timeline to a product or an app or a news site that you've never seen before. So that's an external trigger. And of course the ethics to that are you're interrupting someone's day and someone's workflow. So really you need it to be relevant and respectful to that, that kind of person, the workflow, you don't want to throw graphic images into that kind of uh, into that space for instance. Um, and actually what, I kind of feel like it's almost like market forces will dictate a level of kind of respect there because essentially if you start over spamming people with things or putting completely irrelevant things, then then they just won't, they won't click and they'll they'll throw you out of that, that precious space of the notifications area. So that's the, that's the first kind of area. And then the second is then the internal triggers, which are, that's a lot deeper because that's where the app will tell a user what to do next through associations stored in your own memory. So if you think about that feeling that you have with Facebook where you you just almost instinctively pick up your phone and you go to Facebook um, because you you have a fear of missing out, you want to know what your friends are doing, you want to know what's happening, that's obviously carefully designed by Facebook. That is an internal trigger that they've built that when you maybe feel lonely, you turn to that app or when you feel what's going on in the world, you turn to Twitter and suddenly you go, oh, it's okay, I'm now aware of what's happening. So that's where there is a lot more responsibility because I think that's where people get burnt out and they feel uh, exhausted. And of course, we're in a frantic news cycle right now with with everything that's happening in the US following the the election. Um, And that exhausts people and it burns people out. And so there is absolutely a responsibility there. But I think the way to, uh, let's say, enforce that is actually helping people uh, to understand that this is happening to them. And to do things like we have to, Take care of ourselves i we have to be very strict about which notifications we allow onto the lock screen do you take your phone to bed just really really basic things about how we let these devices impact our lives so i don't think regulation on a government level is the way to deal with the ethics of it but i do think education on you know how difficult it can be to sleep after you've spent an hour browsing through (laughs) really stressful tweets that kind of stuff is really important
1: but once the audience becomes wise to the tactics that have sucked them in or maybe they wake up to the negative impact on their mental health or say the productiveness of their time, won't that make it difficult then to keep them engaged and keep them addicted?
0: Uh, very possibly and and maybe as people become more aware um, then the effectiveness of these methods will will disappear and that might not be a bad thing especially for the news industry which is the industry I'm sort of I guess most knowledgeable and passionate about because I think at that point then the real quality content gets to, to come through and the people, you know, the, the content that really engages and informs and educates will actually shine through a lot more than that kind of endless scrolling through baby pics and, and kind of dog gifts.
1: You're listening to Fourth Estate. You mentioned the New York Times jittery gauge that led the live US election coverage in November. And for those who didn't see it, it was a visual representation of three needle gauges that showed the likelihood of Trump winning the presidency, the popular vote and the electoral votes. I certainly kept it open throughout the day. Uh, And the benefit of being in the Australian time zone means that we literally were able to watch it all day long. Although maybe our national productivity was considerably lowered on November Uh, 12th. But the gauge generated a lot of attention and also criticism. Some said that the design was irresponsible, especially because the jitter was in fact hard-coded and not a representation of minute changes in the result. Other people praised it. I think it's fair to say that it achieved the purpose of keeping people glued to the New York Times website, though. What do you think of it, Adam? Do you agree with the critics?
0: I think it was incredibly effective at what it set out to do. So, I mean, actually a lot of this is bundled up in uh, was the data behind it real as well you know so there's there's two aspects is one how reliable was the data well we found out that a lot of the polling data was was less reliable than people people thought um but then the second is exactly what you said there if it's not actually tied to genuine genuine moves then is it spiking emotions you know unfairly or, or without kind of foundation let's say so i thought it was fantastic from the point of view is i think news organizations have really been really bad at understanding attention as a metric attention as a thing that that is possessed by a, a reader or an audience member and is a thing that we need to, to bargain with and, and, t- and, and kind of compete with other areas for. And that's why Facebook has become so popular and news organizations have struggled to build that kind of relationship with their readers and why we're having so much trouble now because they essentially have given away a lot of this uh, readership that they had and now they can't get it back. So from that point of view, I thought it was great for saying, well, here's... Uh, something that's built on uh, information, it's built on data, and it's drawing people in, it's attracting them, and I think that can only be good for news organisations going forward. Um, and as I said in the article, but I think there's a balancing act between um, making up data, or you know, you can go a long way with with data and numbers, um, making up data just to keep people interested, as opposed to genuinely informing people. But like an election night is a very addictive place right like we could all just go to bed and wake up at you know here in Europe at 4am and find out the result if we wanted it us watching it doesn't change it but you want to see history unfolding and I, and i think watching data in real time and these kind of interfaces are just another way of doing that
1: i'm glad you mentioned the metric of audience attention because i wanted to ask if you're aware of tim wu and his recent Book The Attention Merchants. And just for those who don't know, Tim Wu is a writer and a professor at Columbia University, and he's also well known for having coined the term net neutrality. And uh, his new book, The Attention Merchants, traces the history of advertising. And basically, he's quite critical of a funding model based on advertising and says that that kind of funding model has really lowered the quality of media. And he uses the example of Netflix to show how quality is, is really improved by making people pay rather than subsidizing production with advertising. So you also use Netflix as an example of a really addictive product. And I wonder if you think that part of that addictiveness is related to the fact that there are no ads.
0: So I completely agree with Tim. I I haven't read that that book. um, The way that newspapers used to work was that advertising and editorial was bundled together um, and then distributed to people on trucks, right? Paper and ink and newspapers. Newspapers had a monopoly in a certain area because they owned the distribution in that area. So if you if you lived in Sydney and you wanted uh, the Herald or whatever, that was great. But if you wanted the New York Times, that was going to be a hell of a lot more difficult for you to get. And Suddenly the internet comes along and just blows open that distribution conundrum and also blows open the localized monopoly that news organizations had on that area because you could then just read the New York Times alongside the Sydney Herald, alongside uh, the Times of London or whatever it was that you wanted to read, and the cost of that was pretty much zero to you. So once you blew open that distribution, there were two things basically, there's only two directions for news organizations to go. One was to try and build an advertising business model, and they were not gonna be as successful at doing that as Facebook, because Facebook under- understood a lot more about those consumers and had a much bigger part in their lives than news organizations. So there will only be a few news brands who will be successful at that level. Um, and a New York Times could be one of them potentially because it has that kind of global name and reach. For everybody else, I just do not see that the advertising model is going to be sustainable for them. And in that case, they've got to move back to subscriptions and they've got to move back to direct relationships with their readers. You don't actually need a huge amount of readers to be successful in this in that in that area. If you can find one thousand or maybe even five thousand people to put in a hundred dollars. Uh, a year, you can actually run a pretty lean, tight news team on that, but the key is you need to be very, very vertical about it, so you need to take a a particular space and just own it. So you could be writing about a particular financial angle, or you could be particularly passionate about the travel industry, or you could be an expert on the economics of soccer. Take one of those angles, completely own it, and then I think you can build up a subscriber base. So I I totally agree. uh, the Netflix angle is an interesting one because what happened there was Netflix got very successful by taking a lot of old TV shows that nobody else wanted and the TV channels couldn't show. Even though a, a TV company or a film cable channel had access to 11, 15,000 films, they could only show one at a time through linear programming, whereas Netflix could basically show 11,000 at a time if they wanted. So that's how Netflix got very kind of, built a lot of value in, and it was good for the user because they, they bundled all this stuff together for one price, but it was also good for the for the producers who were getting great value from their back catalogue, which they couldn't monetize in another way. So that's why Netflix's, Netflix's success is there. And if you want to look forward to the news industry, bundling could also be the, the successful point of the news industry there in, in one of two ways. The first is in that advertising space. Can news organizations almost unionized to to wield greater buying power in that advertising space on Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and so on? Or will there be a subscription service uh, that is also bundled, a kind of blendle type affair, which is this Dutch startup, where you can buy access to multiple publications with one kind of regular payment? And I think both of those things will emerge as business models.
1: Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about Blendle. I'm aware of them, and I think what they're doing makes a lot of sense. Could you just explain what exactly it is they're doing and if they're having much success?
0: So in the Netherlands, it's very popular. They rolled out a beta into the US. Um, and and the, the way this works is that essentially you pay, well, you upload money into an account and then you get access to lots and lots of paywalled publications, so magazines and newspapers that you would usually have to have a subscription to. And then as you're browsing through it, once you've read an article, you can actually then decide to give a small percentage of your monthly allowance. Let's say you pay 10 bucks a month. You can, you can give 10, 15 cents to that article. And if you didn't like that article, you can actually ask for the money back for that article. So you, a news organization will get a lot more per article than it would normally. Um, But also it's encouraged to, you know, it'll get a much better understanding of the value that its audience is getting from those things. And for the user, it's great because you get access to a thousand titles. That's why it's kind of called often the the Spotify of news or the iTunes of news, um, because it it takes that digital distribution paradigm in in a similar way to to Netflix, for instance. So they rolled out a beta in the US, and I know a bunch of people, including News Corp, kind of um, invested into that. Um, and I don't know how that's taking off there. Um, so that, that's, that, that'll be the interesting one is to see how that works. I suspect that it might not be paying off in these organizations and they would do better to do what the Washington Post has done recently, which is, you know, launch new newsletters, essentially. And we're seeing Axiom and the Washington Post and a bunch of others now monetize really, really interesting newsletter strategies. And I think that, again, goes back to, to attention, uh, we spend way more time in our email inboxes than we do on our on on apps on our devices. Um, you know, most of us five, four hours a day in some kind of email program. Well, that's actually really where the attention is. And if you can get things into people's inboxes, you actually stand a great chance of being read.
1: You mentioned the Washington Post having a revival of email newsletters, which does make a lot of sense, considering we are all well and truly addicted to our email inboxes. I also read about another new initiative of theirs, which is a new service called The Lily, and it's aimed at millennial women, and it will be published on Medium, Facebook and Instagram at least just to start. So to me, that seems like a good recipe for success, considering we are also all well and truly addicted to social media. And so that would save the Washington Post the trouble of trying to create a new addictive news product. What do you think of that approach?
0: I think it depends what their goal is. I think the Washington Post is in a move at the minute to try and get global recognition and become a global brand in the same way that uh, The Guardian did you know, launched a digital strategy where they said we don't know where the revenue is coming from but we want to push out into Australia into the US and become a, a household name in the way that maybe the New York Times is um, and so if the Washington Post aim is to do that then of course you just need to get out in front of people. The key is then going to be to monetize that because they will struggle to monetize that on those platforms. Um, that's when they'll potentially have to then bring people behind some kind of paywall or have some added bonus. Um, so I suspect what they're doing there is building audience uh, in a pretty cheap way. They don't have to build any apps or anything. They can test out a bunch of ideas. They can see what resonates. And once they capture that real hardcore group of a thousand, two thousand, five thousand people that would engage with this, and you know, millennial millennial women is not a, a niche. You know, that's 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 millions and millions of potential readers around the world. If they can monetize each one of them at two, three, four bucks a month, you actually have potentially a really interesting uh, business model there. But that transition. To getting them to pay is what's interesting.
1: You're listening to 4th Estate. I'm Olivia Rosenman and I am speaking with Adam Thomas, the Director of the European Journalism Centre. Adam, are there any news organisations out there that are doing a good job of this?
0: So it's interesting because two of the best, to my mind, have closed in the last 12 months. So circa... I thought was really a really fantastic experiment that was a mobile first news app that really tried to to almost build very kind of small explainers that that grew over time as a story grew over time it was kind of atomized content i think as they were calling it um and i thought to myself yesterday with the speed of the news cycle that we have i, I sort of really wish we had circa back in the world uh, another one was breaking news which was um uh, an app that did exactly what it said on the tin, it did breaking news, but they had great geolocation stuff, they had really interesting notifications on the lock screen, and they really sort of drew people in. Both of those unfortunately have been shuttered, so I I think really the best news products right now out there are, are subscription products that involve either emails or actually podcasts as well. I think those two are fantastic because they both play into the mobile device, they both play into areas of our life where we have time to engage with them on our morning commute or on board at work. Um, they both use distribution methods that are as old as the net itself, right? Like email and RSS feeds, which is all that a podcast is. That's some of the oldest technology out there. So it's tried and trusted and it's a standard. So really, the interestingly, it's not about kind of crazy, exciting technology or innovative cutting-edge apps. It's actually about leveraging decades old technology and building up trust with readers. And I think that's really where the true innovation is happening.
1: Does making news addictive mean dumbing it down and making it easy to digest?
0: I don't think those two things are necessarily related upon each other. I think you can make something addictive, um, but make it incredibly high quality. I think if you look at the Netflix example, there's some great television on there. Um, it's the way that it's distributed to you and the way that you can watch it whenever you want that makes it, has that ability to, to be addictive. Um, so I don't think those two things are, 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 are unrelated, uh, or sorry, necessarily related. But I guess there is actually a need to an extent, to not necessarily dumb down, but to definitely simplify news cycles. We're seeing now in politics and with so many different kind of views that there's so much going on, it's really, really hard to find out what the exact story is. And these stories are moving so fast and checking Twitter every two minutes is not really helping us understand the the wider factor. And I think we've forgotten to take a step back and breathe. So I still think there's a big space for explainer journalism of the type that Vox have been doing a lot of Um, and and some really great, Slate have some great initiatives at the minute as well. There's some really fantastic examples out there of people who are taking the time to explain to you exactly what's going on. Um, So... I don't think it's dumbing down, but there's a need for simplification for sure.
1: I wonder if you could talk a bit more about Vox because I recently read an interview with Vox's editor-in-chief, Ezra Klein, and he said that rather than attracting an addicted audience, he is aiming to reach people who aren't really into news at all. Vox is really well known for uh, doing these great explainers and news roundups for people who might not have been following an issue over a long period of time or who just want an overview, don't want every detail, uh, who need really an introduction right from the beginning. Uh, and they play around with a bunch of different formats. They use text, visuals, short form pieces, long form pieces, videos. So, Adam, to me, Ezra Klein's approach seems to be the polar opposite of creating a loyal, addicted audience. What do you think about what Fox is doing?
0: I think they have a they have a very broad base in terms of what they talk about, from kind of sports to memes to really deep political stuff to world politics. Um, So in that instance, they're not going for a kind of vertical niche, but what I think they're doing is taking a very specific type of news consumer that cuts across all of those things. And those are people who want to be informed, who are sort of pride themselves in being informed, but, you know, might not admit that they don't know everything about the, you know, the process of issuing an executive order in the United States and and the ramifications of that, which frankly, most people don't either. So I think they can still build an addictive product there. And I, and I definitely find myself thinking, I don't really know enough about this topic. I'm going to go to Vox. That's exactly the kind of trigger that they, wanted to, that they want to build and that will allow them to, to work really well um, with, with kind of maintaining and, and retaining that audience.
1: Adam, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time.
0: It's been a total pleasure, Olivia. Thank you.
1: And that is it for us this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch us in the same time in the same place next week. I'm Olivia Roseman. This is Borcusteck.